0: Hi, and welcome to the Collective Impact podcast. A collective impact is when communities collaborate, share resources, and learn together in a structured way to create equity-enhancing change. I'm Mina Yildiz, and I founded this podcast to uplift the stories of historically marginalized groups and people within the Madison, Wisconsin community, and to celebrate their work in helping create a better world. I invite listeners to pay attention to how systems of oppression impact people's experiences and to be aware of how these systems may affect your life or the people around you. I hope this podcast can inspire listeners to share their own stories, nurture their passions, and become a part of creating systems-level change. Well, thank you for being here with me today, Justice. Um, although we already know each other, I thought that we could do a short introduction and a little icebreaker. So, um, just you know, your name, your age, pronouns, and your affiliation with UW Madison.
1: All right, uh, my name is Justice Castaneda. I am uh, use the he series pronouns. Uh, my age, I'm forty two years old. Uh, I'm technically a graduate student finishing my dissertation at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, but uh, see how that goes. You know. <laughs> All
0: right. Um, and then is there a quote or a phrase or saying that you have that has any personal meaning to you and then you know why?
1: Yeah, life is too short for how we pasta. <laughs> it's true. Uh,
0: of it that way. Uh, that? <laughs> I never thought of it that way. I have a lot of dietary restrictions, so I'm going to use that one.
1: <laughs> no, a lot of people. Yeah, no, I I, don't, I think if, I, you know, that's one of them, but I, I do have this other thing that I kind of uh, I'm sitting here thinking about a few of them. I mean, one of them, I think, is that the plan is nothing more than the most natural and normal point of demarcation from any current trajectory. It's never meant to be followed because the conditions under which a plan is made are never constant. So if you make a client's success beholden to conditions that were extant at the time of the plan being made, you're inevitably setting yourself up for failure. Yeah. It's, a, it's a kind of a mouthful, but I mean, the whole thing, I think uh, there's some meaning to it.
0: Yeah. I, quotes are always really meaningful for me, and I always reflect on them when things get hard. So I think it's great to have those. Um, so just to start off the interview, you know, I wanted to uh, touch on your childhood, your upbringing, uh, your adolescence to adulthood, and um, just you know. Tell me a little bit about it, and then you know we can go into the questions for that. Uh,
1: well, where uh, where to start? Where would you like me to start? How do we? Uh, how do you want me to start? Yeah, What's start the best thinking? way to frame it? Just uh, I mean, that's it's just a lot, yeah. and I think one of the uh, the Achilles. Being older, you know, every year, uh, you think a little bit more, you know, and you put a lot of things into context and you add filler or, you know, things that kind of were linear at one point, but then you start to understand a lot of the things that went into, uh to support the foundation, you know, to support how you were thinking or why you were feeling that way. So mm-hmm. I grew up here in Madison. I'm from Madison. I was born here, born at home, 23 North, North Ingersoll Street. Um, my father, you know, he was a, College, both my parents were university students at the time. Uh, my dad, neither of them finished college, but both of them uh, were kind of a first year thing. And my dad was a musician. Um, my mother actually was kind of, you know, it wasn't, you know, man, sounds bad already, but like it wasn't necessarily like they weren't in love or anything. I wasn't like a product of a marriage. <laughs> um and so I didn't really know my father much when I was a kid, uh, I lived with my mother. We kind of, you know, did the low income housing tour in Madison, Wisconsin, bouncing around from this place to that place, respite centers and shelters and such. And, you know, then, uh, I don't know. My mother, uh, disappeared when I was an eight, eight when I was eight years old and, uh, ended up through a right and roundabout right way in and with my father for a couple of years. Um, and then I kind of moved out on my own when I was 13 years old. I uh I've been out of my own since.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Um <laughs> I
1: thought it was heavy. Here, I'm gonna get real quick, you know, I'm gonna real quick grab some coffee. It'll take me two seconds to right?
0: Okay. See you soon. Uh, sorry okay.
1: about that.
0: No worries. Welcome back. Um yeah. So just to resume off where we left off, is there a, like a part of your childhood that you feel the most grateful to have gone through, and that contributed to you know your current life journey?
1: Um, I think there's always kind of a dichotomy, right? Like uh, because I'm here, you know, I feel like there's always lessons to be learned, and there's a lot that I learned having to deal with whatever I had to deal with. Um, <laughs> I think I was for my father's shortcomings. Um, my mother started with her for her shortcomings. She did a couple of things for me. Um, she taught me how to read at a really young age. And, uh, so I could read by the time I was four years old and I kind of became a voracious reader. Um, but, but the, the kind of the secondary part of that was my mother, you know, she was technically a journalism student and, uh, my father well not academically engaged really as a student he uh he was a mecha you know he's a machista, so he um, his circle even as kind of a local musician was kind of artists and intellectuals and i think um again, despite him not being present for a lot of that, you know for me as a kid he um, I do feel very fortunate um for that, right? Like there's a lot to be said about being surrounded by the arts and around thinkers. And so uh, I feel really lucky for that.
0: Yeah, creativity in all spheres is very inspiring. And I know reading gives me a lot of solace too. So um, wonderful that you're able to, uh, that was to happen. Um, But the next part is, is there anything that, you know, you feel like you regret um, having gone through or you wish something that you may have done differently?
1: Yeah, I think um, I think a lot of it, you know what I'm saying? Like I saw stuff, my childhood was not appropriate for children, you know what I'm saying? And I saw a lot of things uh, as a young kid and did a lot of things as an adolescent that were, whole I mean, to say that it's inappropriate for kids is like such an understatement. Um, it just was some very horrific stuff that, you know, I've witnessed in my life that has left, you know, left a, a very lasting impact on me and, a footprint you know in in terms of uh, everything about me it's affected me severely so uh, you know I think that that stuff is really hard you know I think uh spending a lot of time really you know it shaped me in a way but because it kind of gave me a sense of who I needed to be as a human being on this planet but
0: yeah do you feel that
1: that that pain is very real and very raw and there's still uh you know
0: do you think that that pain or the experiences that you've been through, even if they were regretful, have kind of helped shape your, you know, passions and, you know, interest in social change at all? Um, did they have any?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it, you know, like, I think not just me, I think in hindsight, thinking a lot about... Um, the people, the conditions, the environment, the reasons, you know what I'm saying? Like, what are the root causes? What are the reasons why I'm going through these things? What is the, what were the things that were affecting or, uh, the inputs that shaped my mother's experience or my father's experience, uh, our experience, my friends, um, definitely when I think about, you know, a lot of my friends, uh, growing up, are dead, man, or, uh have that zombie syndrome where they're dead and their body hasn't got the memo, but more and more of them are dead, you know, and uh, I th- and a lot of them are locked up, you know, uh, in prison, and I think a lot about or in and out of jail is what I mean about that zombie syndrome. Um, I I think a lot about, you know, it's not that they never had a chance or that it was deterministic, but like in a way there's so many of them who like I knew how this was going to shake out for them. When I you know if I look back into everything that was happening with us and you know kindergarten first second grade uh it, again it's not to say that it's deterministic but the die was cast right like these kids you know they never really had a fair shot and it was inevitable uh and the interventions or the the spaces that we looked for educational interventions and support it just was non-existent in terms of uh what the kids needed, you know? So to your point, um, yeah, I think a lot of it has fueled a lot of the my fire, my passion and, you know, the work that I do, the work that I aspire to do.
0: Yeah, and that actually brings me right to the next part, which would be, you know, education, your background and connections. Um, So did you have that similar kind of experience with the education system when you were uh, growing up too?
1: So, so there's a couple things, right? So let's go back to the to two things before, you know, I, I said I was very appreciative of my mother teaching me how to read mm-hmm. at a young age. Um and then my father for surrounding me with kind of these intellectual type. I um though know, both those things pay dividends over time, you know, because I think being in a school and being able to read and not having to deal with literacy. Uh, again, not relying completely on, you know, this is not a novel concept. This has been well established in research, but being able to have what is considered extracurricular reading or reading or, you know, engagement with literacy outside of school is so necessary. And So one of the places that you see significant gaps um, is where you have some students who the extent to which they're you know, exposed to reading or to literacy or to a lot of your core curricular uh, activities as well, they in a school. And so the, what you look at is the hours that are spent on curricular or supportive activities outside of school, and there's huge disparities. And so I think the fact that I was exposed to a lot of this stuff, um, and it was, in, in, you know, my, I should also say that my, uh, well, my father was a knucklehead. His mother was the first Mexican or one of the first Mexican people. Uh, or, you know, immigrants born and she wouldn't be an immigrant. First Mexican-American is born in Racine, Wisconsin. And one of the, you know, of the first that are on record is born in the state. And uh, my grandmother has a master's degree in education and in education policy. Uh, From UW Whitewater. I think about that a lot because at the time, you know, during that era, the likelihood of, you know, women being accepted or being able to access higher education at all was very, very slim, right? Like that was a very low chance that you were able to engage in that. And here you had a Mexican woman, uh, Mexican American, you know, uh, I would say Chicana, but she would never call herself that. But uh, you have a Mexican American woman who, is not only going to college and getting advanced degrees um all of her kids, all nine of them stepped foot on a college campus now, only four of them finished uh but all five of them the five that didn't you know they have their own stories and they did so I say that to say um uh, and I you know on my other my dad's cousins i mean I have you know my my dad's first cousin, he has a first cousin who, you know, PhD in psychology, a first cousin who's a judge. So the institution of education was not foreign to me. It wasn't something that was totally, you know what I'm saying, like totally absent uh, from my psyche and my thought processes. So I think that that unto itself was a unique, uh, it's a type of privilege, right? Even though I wasn't able to operationalize that until much later in my life, Um But I, you know, I tested well, I was always a good tester. And, you know, um, we know now that during that era, especially when it came to math, but during that era so much of every core curriculum was really assessing, you know, part of it, the, what I would call the economic grant to do well in your core curriculum was literacy and being able to, you know, because so many of like the math problems, especially some of the longer problems would you would get on those tests or word problems and being able to have word association was so important. And so even though it technically was supposed to be testing the degree to which you had math that a lot of what it's testing, or it's you know, before you can get to the math part, you got to be able to test whether you can read the problem. And so, I think that that it, you know, I was a very accelerated, advanced reader. Um, yeah. And so, I think that that gave me a lot in terms of mileage. I was academically, I won like a math meet in fifth grade or fourth grade. You know, I was like doing a lot of this stuff, even though I was dealing with a lot of other stuff at home. I always did well, at least at elementary school. Um, It wasn't, I didn't start dropping off until I hit middle school. And then when I moved out of my own, like I I think I only went to a total, like maybe a month or two of seventh grade, for instance, like I didn't even go. Uh, So, you know, I started doing worse. I barely graduated high school. I worked, you know, I um, graduated 1.46 GPA out of uh, Madison East, I mean, I graduated by the skin of my teeth, you know, but it 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 was kind of, you know, when you talk to, you know, I've been able to talk to educators or uh, administrators that I knew or that, you know, were around me as a kid, um, I was politically engaged, you know what I'm saying? So even though I, I knew, um, you know, I wasn't doing well at school, um, I was very aware of who I was politically and about a lot of things that were happening. And so, you know, throughout high school, I was involved in something called the Multicultural Teen Council, Mm -hmm. which I was the youngest person. I actually met these folks and pretty much trying to think about now before I went to jail. But, you know, like I was like the outlier as a young kid um, who was doing this like as an outlet like as an artistic outlet or expression whereas all the other kids that were in it were juniors and seniors who were highly academically inclined Mm. and were doing this work um, because they wanted to get into college or because they needed extracurriculars and so being around them, so we would go to high schools and just do presentations around kind of southern wisconsin around things like interracial dating, uh, racism around LGBTQ, about same-sex relationships. Um, you know, so that stuff at the time is so interesting because, you know, a lot of the same things that we were identifying and noticing, I just feel like time there's the eternal recurrence of the same. Whereas a lot of the same things that we saw as being problematic about the city or the county then were still they're still there now. So you know I will say that you know I was engaged politically I had a political consciousness but I didn't you know
0: yeah I can see how your, you know your background with your education and how that was engraved in your family and became a big part of your life um you know down the road as well and I think it's really amazing that you're able to find that political um you know ambitions and passions and be able to express that in a creative way um so you know going out like from there, what what is your education background once you uh kind of identified that political um... so
1: I barely graduated high school. I uh, I started going to MATC or what they call Madison College now, uh right after high school. I I don't know why. I wasn't ready. It was it was kind of a, a wasted, I mean, whatever, nothing is wasted in terms of experience, but it uh okay. I spent a semester getting like D's and F's, <laughs> and the, th- the craziest part of that is that I went back for a second semester, <laughs> and the way, you know, got more D's and F's, you know, um, and a lot of it was, you know, it's, you know, the stuff that we take for granted, the stuff that we know so much of school is having the conditions or having the mindset or having the structure or focus to be able to do it. And so a lot of that comes back to kind of those that hierarchy of needs thing, right? So like, do you have basic needs? Um, do you have all these things figured out so that you can actually engage in school in a way that you're going to get a return for the time that you are spending in that space? And I absolutely had not, if anything, it had gotten worse, right? Like I was doing, you know, worse. As an adult in terms of having access to basic needs than I was able to do as a kid. And so, uh, yeah, that was rough, man. And so um I ended, I was working construction. After that, I worked, I was a sheet metal worker um for a couple of years doing tinning and sheet metal, like, you know, construction office and then did some roofing. Um, at that point, a lot of the people that I grew up with, that's when everyone started to really, you know, I had a couple of friends get killed, um, and I had a couple folks that were kind of within our circle get killed. And uh, a lot of people around me started going to prison, and so I went. I, you know, like kind of by the skin of my teeth. I, uh, and I don't really know. You know, you know, I, I know how I ended up at the recruiting office, but I don't remember exactly. I don't know. It's so interesting. I mean, these things. You know, life on some level is like these pivots on the edge of a razor. Like you're. I don't know what compelled me completely to just get out of here, but I knew I needed to get out of here. And so uh, when I was 20 years old, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. And which um, was really interesting. And I used that, you know, in terms of education, I, I think it's hard more and more because there's so few people who have military experience who are in the workforce um, or at least in positions of HR or hiring. But the people in terms of operationalizing this, it can be very difficult, but the um, while well, there is a professional and probably a personal component to the military. In that, you're learning how to be an adult. You're, you know, it's giving you a sense of structure or a sense of infrastructure that you can build off of to develop personal, sk- uh, professional skills. And a lot of it's the intangibles, right? Like punctuality, um, responsibility, accountability, tact. You know, a lot of the things. And trust me, you know, and. 20 years uh of management i've never you know like i've never seen and i've been you know we'll talk about this in a second but like i've been to graduate schools that are around organizational management leadership i have multiple certificates i've been in, in a directorial or a managerial position for over 15 years uh well you know if you include the military for 20 years i've been doing management of some sort and uh there is nothing like it in terms of teaching people and how to both self-govern, but also how to govern, how to manage other people. And uh, a lot of the things they're teaching you, you know, those intangibles, I think are really important. Understanding that as a professional skill set, but the academic space in that the military is, so okay. the segue there is that the military, Marine Corps in particular, is very much a school. The whole time you're there you're going to schools you're training 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 you're always going to school you're always being assessed evaluated training 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 so growth is endemic to the work so it's kind of you can't there is no stagnation you're always going to a training going to a school going to a training going to a school um so it taught me how to learn i guess in a way or gave me a space that i could develop how to learn you know how to be self-taught so i started you know again i barely graduated high school and so, you know, I was like, I need to get, you know, a degree. But also at the time, I, when I first got in the military, I was, was sober. I, you know, it was probably the first time, in my, you know, since adolescence, since I was like 12 that I had been, except for when I was locked up, but I was where I was completely sober and I wasn't drinking or doing any drugs or, uh, I mean, I was never really into hard drugs, but I used to smoke a lot of weed and as a kid. I drank a lot you know and so all of a sudden i'm in this space where i was sober where i had you know in that sense, when you think about uh your basic geneva conventions rights where you're eating three meals a day where you have access to correspondence to religious services to hygiene for a lot of kids the first time that we find that is in jail and so you get this thing where uh, the most socially toxic space is physically one of the more healthier spaces that you'll ever get to. And so the military, you know, it is that, right? It's a place where you don't have to, it's like you take, if you had to spend 90% of all your energy trying to access basic needs, what the Marine Corps says is, look it, you don't have to worry about that anymore. We have that covered. So now you have all the, all you got to do is focus on this one thing. And you can use all that other energy to, to do whatever you want. And so I started, you know, D'Abbling like, again I had never gotten good responses from academic spaces, I kind of felt like you know, being sober in the Marine Corps I needed to figure out what to do with my time, so I would either go to the gym. it's the healthiest by far that i've ever been um, I would go to the gym and then I would just go to school, And so I started off by taking like one you know your lower division writing class, you know what I'm saying, got an A. And I was like, yo, that's cool, got an A. I never got an A before, so I would take another class. And, uh, you know, you got time, you know, you got four years, your enlistment's four years. And so kind of taking one class at a time and getting an A in it, just focusing on one class. And then after, you know, a few of those, I started taking two classes. And then all of a sudden, so the military, another thing is that tuition assistance is free. And so you can just go to school so long as you get Caesar or better, um, you can just go to school. And uh, I just became kind of like a, a education junkie where I was just taking classes at this point. I don't know if it even is relevant anymore to people, but the reference I always say is like the matrix where the guy, you know, all of a sudden everything slowed down and then you could just see everything and so I started taking like astronomy and astrology and physics and calculus I just started taking all these classes just everything I took mythology I was taking like random histories of there, you know just because I could because it was free and so I was taking at some point three or four classes a term and uh and it was kind of a trip man so I did that ended up going to war came back um actually tried to get out of the military and this is still in the education stuff um that your question but i came back to madison briefly and uh while well, i had taken all these classes and i had two associates i didn't have a degree an actual four-year degree at the, that time and so i think that was the first time that i had just hit home like in a very real and raw way that like all those commercials about how employers care at all about you being a veteran that was all not true and uh because nobody's a veteran so like nobody you know they don't really value it because nobody isn't so um you know, I came back here and couldn't get a job because I didn't have a degree, you know, and I was like, you know, so the saying, I was like, all right, even though I have four years of military service and experience managing people and like, it didn't matter. And so I ended up re-enlisting, staying in the military for another four years. But at that point, I uh, I knew that like, there was no way, you know, I need need to not go to school, just random potpourri, you know, I was going, you know, going to school to play Jeopardy, you know what I'm saying, where I just knew a lot of things about random things. So I started honing it in and, you know, focusing on getting the uh, lower divisions knocked out and then, you know, trying to figure out what was the next step. I had a really good boss talking into getting out of the military um, and finishing school. So ended up going to the University of California at San Diego where I finished my undergraduate degree. Uh, It was strikingly easy. At that point i was 27 or 28 or something and uh college at that point was so easy when you think about it like so much that you had to control for for adolescence and then the fact that i understood basic needs acquisition and didn't have to worry about that like all of a sudden school became really easy and so i got straight a. and basically from the time i started going to school in the military until i got to grad school i got straight a's there was a couple exceptions where i got b plus uh, but in general like overall i think i graduated from uc san diego with a 3.9 something um and you know i was teaching at the time so I after the after the military I, or after uh, undergrad i started teaching i got my undergraduate degree in urban urban studies and planning with a minor in education policy um and i started teaching at a continuation high school working teaching algebra as a teacher's assistant, um uh, teaching algebra and in, in English in these two classes in a project based learning environment. And I had a really good advisor there who uh mentor who kind of put his arms around me and uh metaphorically and uh and just asked her about grad school and I had never really thought about graduate school. I mean as a kid I was kind of a you know gangbanger. So like I never really thought about school in general. Um so he taught me so I just applied to all these schools and uh it was probably the most surreal experience. I think getting into undergrad was a thing, but when I applied to grad school and I got accepted to uh like Brown and NYU and Columbia and Harvard and Stanford and it was just kind of a trip, man. And uh Wisconsin, all these things. I got accepted here, you know, I got accepted. Um uh, it was kind of weird. And so I ended up going to grad school at Stanford University for education policy, organizational leadership. Um, it was a good time, I met good people. I mean, it was a, a lot of the experiences you learn are a lot of, you know, what you'll find this too is that, I don't know, maybe you won't. I, for me, the areas that I struggled in school are generally speaking where I learned the most. And uh, the things, the places that I found serious contradictions again were were those junctions of or opportunities for for learning or for uh growth. And so I um at those you know realized that schools of ed, they don't really teach education so much as they t- teach learning, ended up applying and got into uh the Massachusetts Institute of Technology for urban studies and Blo- well for it was for planning and like, what was the problem? Department of Urban and urban studies and planning, but my focus was in housing and economic housing policy, economic development and industrial relations, which is kind of an applied economics as it pertains to housing and land use is what I would say. Finished that, did a bunch of work um, in and around that. It was a bunch of stuff. I mean, there was all these concurrent narratives that were kind of happening. One thing was I was focusing on school, trying to finish this and, you know, soaking all that up. but then also, some of the studio work had run into community health, specifically asthma. Um, And so I didn't really understand a lot of the technical component of the um, of how the brain like cognition and like the way that stress like I understood social toxicity and I understood that children who are exposed to violence are going to have a harder time navigating conventional educational environments. but I didn't understand it at the level that I wanted to and so I ended up getting a fellowship. Um, a couple of things happened. I, I got hired by policy link uh, think tank in Oakland to work on what became the my brother's keeper initiative for the White House. So it was looking at, uh, so the Obama administration was doing a lot of thinking around, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how do you lift up what works? And if they were trying to do some things to address the educational uh, economic outcomes for boys and men of color, what would that look like? So I was on that team Um, working at a middle school in Oakland at the time, doing some math curriculum design for a friend of mine who, uh, was the principal there. And then I got into a fellowship, a postgraduate fellowship at the medical school that used see San Francisco um, where I could really focus on the clinical and kind of the more nuanced parts of stress and the way that stress affected immunoregulatory function or your immune system um, and how it affected cognitive development in adolescence. And so the way that stress and trauma not only how it impacts or how it affects learning and and growth, but also how to mitigate it and strategies for thinking around, you know, like, all right, if I know that a child is dealing with these things, what's the best environment or what's the best way to work with them? Uh, So did that, uh, took some time after the fellowship. I was going to finish my PhD at the time. I think I took some time off just to kind of figure out what I wanted to be doing. At that point, I'm like 35 or whatever. And I kind of felt like, you know, I'd been to school for a bit, 36, maybe. And uh, so I was going to move, well, I ended up moving back to Boston, was working in Boston, and then I uh, was going to move back to Oakland. And the job at Commonwealth came up, but then also an opportunity to come back here and finish my PhD. And I think that brings us current. That's the education answer.
0: Yeah.
1: I finished that fellowship at the medical school.
0: That fellowship sounds really interesting, especially with someone with the compromised immune system. It's uh, those connections I, I didn't know. So thank you for sharing that, and you know your background and uh, what you learned, and um, all of the things that you've been a part of. Um, so I can see how you know your education was you know huge sparkers and precursors to you know, your work now. Um, how would you you know define social change, and you know, what does it mean to you? How do you see yourself a part of it?
1: I, so as I'm sitting here um, at nine fifty-five in the morning on a Monday, I will say change is a constant, right? Like it's one of the only constants. Everything has changed, you know. From or you are your age, your brain. By the time you go to sleep tonight, your brain will have changed significantly. You know, what I'm saying like you will have grown, uh, you know, significantly in today you know so like you're it's gonna change changes a constant it's gonna happen um I think change and positive change are different constructive or productive change like all those things I think are what uh what we're getting at here right and <clears throat> I think people sometimes conflate change with growth uh, or change with the evolution um I don't think that those things are necessarily synergistic or I don't think that they're antithetical to one another, but I don't think that they're the same thing. And uh I think that's important for people to understand is you know that they're they're not. So I would just say that uh, you know, you're trying to make lives better. You know, I think about this a lot is like how do you create spaces or neighborhoods or in, encourage the growth or the development of neighborhoods or spaces where people can fall in love. And it, it doesn't have to be like with the person be reading or writing or running or gardening or cooking or whatever Uh, but what that feeling is right like in a very bell hooks way like the idea of love is a construct in places where you know and to think about what the uh artifactual infrastructure has to look like for someone to really negotiate and engage in, in absolute love and to think about it that way and if people are operating in that way then to me, that's that space where uh, you see that growth that I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. Um, what are those, you know, emotions that are invoked when you uh, are a part of these social change movements, or what is it that you know really fuels that passion for you?
1: Uh, you know, I wish it was. Uh... I think for me, I mean honestly, it's just that a lot of my friends are dead, you know, like a lot of it is very in a way I think this is a I would say a critique, and you know this is a challenge that I have is that this isn't um the work is consuming in a way, you know, and uh, like I've been to war right like that's that's like a real thing it's like happening, you know what I'm saying the United States is an involvement in other countries' political and economic systems is is part of our pursuits or endeavors in social policy or um, foreign policy, the manifestation of, of that is, in many cases, war. You know what I'm saying? And whether it's us directly or if it's us involved in you know covertly or you know, however we're doing this. And the war is sometimes that we think about are not necessarily the ones that are declared. A lot of things. So I, my personal opinion, this is my personal opinion, Is a lot of politics, for instance, around uh, let's say, women's bodies. Uh, it's not really, for instance, that we're, anyone is anti-abortion, for instance. Not to start off with such a blight topic, but like, when you think about all the constructs and all the things that actually lead into the occurrence of uh, a woman having to make that decision to, uh, there's just a lot of other things that if you have those infrastructures in place, you can do a lot in terms of actually preventing that occurrence from ever existing. So if I have comprehensive medical, you know, like all these other things in terms of evaluation of women, you actually were reduce the, so you're not really anti-abortion per se, you're just kind of anti-woman. And I would say that for the United States, in terms of the way that we engage with other countries Like, we're not really anti-immigration, we're kind of anti-immigrant. And so it's not like we really, if you think about how we operate in these other places, it's like, yeah, whatever you're doing down there in terms of disruption, in terms of volatility, in terms of exploitation, in terms of all these other things, as part of your natural foreign policy, it holds that a lot of that could very plausibly or probably result in people being like, you know what, we got to get the hell out of here. And so they run out and then they come here and then we treat them like boot camp because we're like, nah, we need it, you know, so again, all that to say is uh, a lot of what drives me is my experiences with, with pain and a lot of these other things, which I don't know is always the healthiest endeavor, right? Like, I don't know if that's the healthiest way to go about it out of this work. I, I think for me, it becomes... I don't know what else I could do right now, like there's not a whole lot else for me until war is over or until this stuff is you know until we are in that space where we have made righteous retributions to to those you know to the the souls the bodies and the lives of the dispossessed I don't uh, I don't know what else to do today and uh as soon as we have done all that, I'll figure it out and then maybe I'll go out and you know I don't know Design shoes or something, you know, and I don't know that these things are exclusive. I just know for me, you know, it becomes this, this matter of, uh, I see all this, I've done all this, I've washed all of it. I've been part of so much of this stuff in different levels. I don't know what else to do.
0: Yeah. I think pain can be very powerful. Um, even if it is really difficult to deal with it, it is, you know, a huge, everything has a starting point and, um, I think that all your experiences has really showed uh, your growth and the story. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, you did mention a little bit about Commonwealth development. So you are the executive director. Uh can you tell me a little bit about what Commonwealth does and like your role in it and how that kind of became to be?
1: Yeah, Commonwealth um created in 1979 as kind of a the culmination of a number of community meetings and events. Uh, stemming out of a response to violence in a neighborhood. And so the thinking was that we want to address violence, we're going to need a number of things in place to do this. And a host of them fell under what is the what are the auspices today of commonwealth development but i don't think they were thinking about it at the time I mean, but one of them is you address it through low-income housing it's creating healthy housing for families and residents second thing is you create an economy so that there's an economy and you know an economic growth and presence in an area and then part of that is going to be hiring people to work in that economy so making per- sure that the jobs and not just the lowest entry, you know, but all the jobs in the area that are being created are accessible to the children and to the people that live in the area, right? And so you have to kind of concurrently or synergistically develop a healthy ecosystem for jobs and um, while also training people, Um, yeah. And then, you know, I think, We've sprouted. We, you know, we started doing a lot of, you know, we've kind of taken all that and uh, we did it well for a long time. We bought, you know, houses. We created houses and we created the um, the incubators. And you know, we did a lot of this stuff here. I don't think we understood how fast. So again, when you're thinking about land use or development of neighborhoods, twenty years is kind of your first temporal metric that's your first benchmark right like these are t- 20 year increments <laughs> 20 years at year zero seems like a long time you know um and then you go to work right you look at your hands you look at your family you look at your hands you look at your family you look at your hands one more time and then you go to work and uh and then you realize that 20 years is no time at all and so i think that you know managing or the growth or expectations or the demand versus our capacity for growth was an interesting i think that that's one place that they just i don't want to call it a shortcoming i just don't think they understood um how that was going to happen and so you know we've expanded in 91 we started working in the high school supporting youth at east high school and then in the odds we expanded to all four high schools and we do work in all four of the high schools um today and you know we've expanded this to have structured experiential learning internships. I think you know something you're seeing we could talk about this at a different time but you know the struggles and the challenges we're trying to take on new endeavors, recognizing the demand, having kind of an all-purpose entity that can start things or be kind of a local think tank around issues pertaining to community development is such a luxury for a city. Uh, whether or not it takes off. I mean, there's been a number of things ranging from, as you're know, you aware of the Youth Advisory Board with Chief of Police to the Madison Recycling Program. Like all these things were the brainchild of Commonwealth development and have been, you know, part of our thinking and part of, uh, you know, what we do for a long time. And so uh, anyway, um, that's kind of, I mean, I said that in a roundabout way. I don't think I've ever muddled up the definition of commonwealth so badly as i just did but that's what we are you know we we focus on you know you you can read our mission but in essence we do the general areas are equitable economic development healthy housing and real estate development um of housing that is for human beings and then the community building right and and really thinking about sustainable land use as part of uh the development of community, and and all of that is under the broader umbrella of violence prevention. I mean, that's what we are, that's what we've always been. That's what we do. Is we do we are a violence prevention initiative organization that uh, that addresses violence through that root cause, or by you know, we encourage the presence and prevalence of love um, or space as a way to think about violence prevention over time. And my job, you know, in a way the executive director of an organization one of the things it's an interesting job i um it's a more administrative than anything and in, in a way you represent the company or you represent the enterprise you need to make sure that this thing exists beyond you and anyone else there and so it asks you to kind of suspend your own personal things i mean it, it, to me and it's epitome And you have to be thinking about that, but you also have to recognize that to get, you know, to keep it going, you have to take care of the people there. And so you have very limited resources to do a lot of things and you have to manage um, the space and its money in a way that is conducive or that allows for ongoing growth for uh, the organization's mission, but also supporting people here. And, you know, it's, it's hard, right? Like that part of it, 'Cause you got people with different ideas and you want to support their ideas as much as possible, but you also realize that they're probably not gonna be here to see those ideas through fruition. And this is what you run into with a lot of these organizations. Um yeah.
0: Yeah, the work that Commonwealth development is, you know, very broad and very important for the community and being able to see it kind of uh, come alive in all those, you know, ways. Uh, even in my time when I was working at Commonwealth, it it was really inspiring to be around that. And it was a huge inspiration too to kind of pursue my own social work. So I was uh or um, social change work, and I was actually going to ask you, you know, what advice do you have to anyone who aspires to change the community or the world for the better or your own, you know, goals and hopes uh, for social change as a whole?
1: <laughs> My first thing is follow your passion. Um, be passionate, you know, what I'm saying I guess and the same thing I would say is fall in love a lot and uh, you know, fall in love a lot. Um, I think the other thing is be wrong be wrong be lazy and be irrelevant and um i can i'll send you an article about that i don't know if i've ever sent it to you but um but be wrong and be all right with that you know like i think there's so many people out here trying to prove that they're right it, they end up being boring because it's yeah you end up being safe you know like you go to what's safe what's done because you know and this is a challenge we have right now i think The grading system, the cost of education—all these things are impediments to actual learning. Um, Because it's especially as you get into grad school, like people become so fixated on the GPA and you know what these things mean that you're going to go towards the things that you're good at, and it's kind of conducive to that. Like that's what it does; it wants you to gravitate where. Like really, you want folks to be testing, you know, trying things out. Like that's where you find growth, right? Like look at. In grad school, <clears throat> I got straight A's, except I got like my first C's I've ever gotten in any academic environment. I got in grad school and I got them in what was it? Program evaluation, uh, believe it or not, in the, the history of higher education, oh, no, the history of school reform, um, and in when I first took calculus-based economics. Uh, now, I don't think that any of that reflects my intellect or intelligence. Uh, all of, there's a story behind each one of those yeah, things. And that I could tell in terms of, you know, the conversation, the, the, I, the guy who I took the history of school reform, he became a mentor and a friend. I took his classes. He was a very difficult grader and he taught me how to write. And I took his class. I took, I worked with him the entire time I was in that program. I took a class with him every quarter Stanford. So it's a quarter system. Um, and I learned more about me through that process in terms of the way that I was thinking and writing, uh, than in anything else. In the program evaluation class and Porteous at Stanford, the whole thing was that I was given a program that I thought was horrible. And it was like a real-time thing. And it was this you know, NGO that was doing some work and I don't remember where, but I thought that their whole model was imperialistic and problematic. And so I wrote this kind of damning critique of the organization and its thinking as part of my ongoing evaluation. And I turned in my draft and she was like, you know, this this isn't what you need to be doing is lifting. And I was like, I don't want to lift this, you know, like this is jacked, you know. And she was like, well, I'm not going to be giving, I'm not going to give you the grade if you turn this in. So I doubled down. I turned it in and she gave me a C and we're fine. We looked at each other in the eyes and we both went our separate ways. So what, you know, then so what? Um, And then the economics thing that was just really the first time I was taking spatial statistics out. MIT was very difficult. It was hard uh, in general. I would say the Marine Corps and MIT, like those are two of the hardest things, like in terms of challenge uh, that I've ever experienced in my life. And it was just difficult. And uh, and I struggled, you know what I'm saying? Like I struggled learning it. I struggled, I you know, it was very hard. And that first semester, you know, where I'm in here trying to do all this stuff uh, and get it acclimated and, you know, it was difficult. And so I got that one, you know, and uh, I say that to say, I learned more. I know so much. I remember those courses. I remember everything about them. I, you know, to this day, I took that economic stuff and I kept going with it. Like I took that same guy, Frank Levy's famous economist. And I studied him the whole time I was in that program. Right. And I worked with him and I got, I made sure I went back until I got an A I'm coming back for another economy, you know, some other economics. So coming in there, and I'm just gonna keep doing this, and and so I I say that to say, don't. It's so hard, right? Like there's, it feels so zero sum, and when we're, you know, it's this cliche thing that, you know, you always hear older people telling you this about, you know, you're young and you got all this time and all this stuff, and it never is always like blah blah blah, because when you're in the moment, it doesn't feel that way, and it's it doesn't help us. But the, uh, you know, being able to uh, Did I ever tell you about jumping out of airplanes?
0: Um, No, I don't recall that.
1: I'll do it in 27 seconds. So when you learn how to jump out of an airplane in the military, you don't, it's not like tandem jumping. You don't jump with someone else. You jump by yourself the first time. So you spend basically three and a half weeks just learning the two things you learn. The first thing that they need to teach you is how to get out of the plane once you get out of the plane, you will land. So like, that's after everything is getting out of the plane. And like, trust me, for the human mind, like everything apart, you're like, hey man, you're crazy. Mind is telling you, do not jump out of an airplane. Um, It turns out that sounds like a horrible idea. That's not a good way to spend my Tuesday. Uh, (laughs) So the other part, then they spend, you know, three weeks learning that he spent a week (laughs) how to land, you know? Uh, And then if you can learn those two things, then everything else. So the day you get to the thing, it's like it's in Georgia. It was hot. It's like it's September around Labor Day of uh, in Georgia, right? Southern Georgia. Um, you got to go to the, the the hangar to get picked up. You got to get there like quarter to five and you're and they put you in this parachute and they tighten it all up. They tell you, don't eat or drink anything, really, because you can't take it off. Once they put that thing on, there's no bathrooms. Now we sat. This thing is so heavy. It's digging in your back. It's like having an 80 pound backpack. And you like and you can't do anything with it. So people are like bending over, trying to do everything they can to shift the weight of this pack off their body. And uh I um <clears throat> and then it's hot, and so the planes you find out that the planes are not, it's not like an airport, they don't come like at 2 30 in the afternoon. There's a two thirty and a one, you know, like that's not how it works. They're reservists who are flying from all over the country. And they come in there just as part of their practice and they'll land so they just come when they come and so you kind of like you're waiting and waiting and that plane we got there at five we didn't point and come to the afternoon. And uh, you go before you get on the plane they read you your rights. Mm-hmm. Because once you get on that plane, you have to jump by law because it endangers everybody if you hesitate at the door, mm-hmm. so they read you your rights, they tell you that they will render you unconscious. Uh And throw you out of that plane. And you got to say, like, this is your last chance. You know what I'm saying? So if you're not going to jump, don't get on that plane. So you get on there. It's rickety. You're on a rickety plane. You're flying up there. It's so loud. You're still sitting there miserably. This thing, this backpack, you get up there in the air. You get the yellow light because it's red light. The whole time it means sit down. Yellow light means stand up. You stand up. And then you look at the person in front of you. Make sure you check their stuff. Make sure their stuff is good. Check, someone's checking your stuff. You got about 30, maybe 30 seconds. And then the green, the door pops open. Boom. Now you hear that the door is open. You know what I'm saying? You're over here like you're on this plane. There's a door open on the plane. And you're sitting here like, well, that's interesting. And uh, then the green light goes. And then it's time to go. And you get in front of a door. You're on an airplane. You get in front of a door. And you got to just, you close, you kick out you close your eyes and you hold your breath and you count to four and you just look up and all of a sudden the weight is gone because the thing, the, the canopy just, you know, went up and, uh, and everything is dead silent because you're just suspended in the air at that moment. And you're just hanging there on the horizon. You're just looking at the horizon at the Alabama sun. And you're just seeing this because you jump in Georgia, you actually jump into Alabama. Um, and it's the most peaceful thing. And uh, you asked me a quote, I'm going to give you the quote, I gave you the wrong quote. Um, I'll give you the quote. I just remember my quote. Uh,
0: it actually, goes like realize people.
1: at that moment um, that you're going to land, that's the only thing that's guaranteed. And so much of it is getting out of the plane, right? Like you got to get out of the plane and getting your mind in the right space that like, I'm going to get out of the plane, let's just do it. And so be good to the people you meet, you meet good people and make more people laugh then you do cry uh, so much as you're able approach every situation absent of self interest and at the end of the day, if and when gravity doesn't take care of the rest, you find a way to love them even when they can't take a joke. And I guess that would be the quote.
0: Thank you so much for your time. This was the Collective Impact Podcast. To stay on top of any updates or to learn more about who we are and what we do, please check out our website, which will be linked to whatever platform you're listening to this on. Other affiliated links will also be available. This is your host, Mina Yildiz, and I hope to see you next time.